0: Good morning, everybody. Let's try again. Good morning, everybody. That's better. So this is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building show, Wake Up and Smell the Revolution. And I'm waking up here very lucky. I didn't sleep in the studio, but I'm here with Akuna Uka and Channing Martinez, two of my best friends and comrades who are really nice enough to come in studio at this hour to discuss My article called Oppenheimer, How the U.S. Built the Atom Bomb to Terrorize the World. It's got a lot of different titles, but it's a review of the very important film Oppenheimer, which is about the nuclear program, the dropping of the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and a story about uh, how the system essentially used the left to build a bomb against what they thought was Nazi Germany, only to use it against Japan, and really pointed at the Soviet Union. So, good morning, Akuna. Good morning, Channing. It's very nice to see you. Uh,
1: yeah, morning. It's been two years since I've been in studio at KPFK, so it's pretty exciting.
0: Good, good. Well, veteran, um, we <laughs> spent about almost two hours last night, which is very generous, talking about the article. Maybe you could open a little bit, and then Akuna, and then I'll... Uh, and Akuna is, by the way, the coordinator of uh, volunteer programs at the Labor Community Strategy Center. Channing is the uh, co-director. I'm co-director, and the three of us, along with Barbara Lott-Holland, do pretty much everything together. So welcome to your first day on the air, Akuna.
2: Thank you. It's great to be here.
1: So yes, we spent two hours yesterday diving into this article, and I know that you read a bit of the introduction last week. Um, and uh, I'll just say I haven't seen the film yet. I'm seeing it this weekend. Um, but the first thing I remember telling you yesterday is it's almost as if I watched a better film having read this article. Um, with chapters and everything, critiques, and it even explains really important scenes. Um, but it's very different than your your article last week where you were speaking about Oppenheimer as being recognized as a communist um which you know to to your point never gets done in film they never do it right um and we always we've i remember we've always been in this studio talking about film reviews, and wait, they did the drug dealer, they did the politician, they did not do the organizer. They did the drug dealer, they did the politician, they even did the pharmacist, they did not do the (laughs) organizer, right? Right. Um, And so, to your point, it's a big thing that they're actually showing Oppenheimer as a real organizer, um, which is one thing you spoke about in your article, um, who's really conscious, but also someone who's uh, really important uh close to the communist party so that is a big takeaway but um and i have like five points i'm not going to make any all of these five points but i think the biggest thing i want to um talk about is this theme of entertainment um that you start talking about in um the article and what i always say is entertainment towards what end and i'll just read this one little sentence where I say if Nolan does not show the murder of Japanese civilians and the timing of this film is both during an almost complete Hollywood strike and during a Cold War with the Soviet Union, China, Iran, and so many more, do you think it would be fair to say that this film is in some ways to promote the current Cold is going on today? You do, do you think it's a manifesto to speak to the conversation about the internalized dilemma that's being thrown around all over media right now, which is this, there's a possibility of a third world war.
0: Well, I'll respond to it in a minute by saying, uh, well, first of all, I'm just thrilled that both of you are here. That means a lot because we were discussing it yesterday. I'm going to read the first page so that uh, there'll be more context for Kuna too. But no, I think the film... You know, I've been living with this film. Uh, Leanne and I saw it twice. Uh, and then I saw uh, uh, Trinity the day after Hiroshima and thanks Mary for turning me on to that. And uh, I've lived with Oppenheim for a week like in a, in a 12 hours, 14 hours a day. I don't want to think about anything else because it's a very hard reality to understand. And I think that Christopher Nolan has done a really great job within what Hollywood does. And we can't ask him to do what we would do because he ain't us. But uh, so I'm going to read the first. uh, I think it is trying, definitely is an anti war film. It's definitely an anti war film. If there's one thing it says, is that this is horrible what they did, and everybody who participated in it, like, well, mainly Oppenheimer was the only person who realized, oh my God, what have I done? Right. And uh, it clearly shows agony and guilt and remorse and being used by the system. So uh, it's a good thing you haven't read my last seven drafts because one was up, one was down, <laughs> one was like, no. Blah, blah, blah. So I'm going to read you the opening and then introduce my friend Kuhn again. So in the film Oppenheimer, the story of the man who built the atom bomb, Christopher Nolan and Cillian Murphy have created an explosive exploration of the ugly history of U.S. imperialism and its anti-communist roots. That's not what uh, they said, it's what I thought. It's also a brilliant personality study of an ambitious, idealistic, driven, and ultimately tormented man. Oppenheimer sheds light on the roots of the Cold War, how the U.S. used the communists in a short-term fight with Japan, Organize them to drop a genocidal weapon of mass destruction on Japanese civilians, only to turn it on its wartime communist allies. Oppenheimer is the story of a brilliant physicist, Robert Oppenheimer, who was close to the Communist Party, worked for the veterans of the Spanish Civil War, most of whom were also close to the Communist Party, worked to organize a union of scientists, and was known as the father of the atomic bomb. In the great final scene of the film, Oppenheimer and Albert Einstein are talking. Einstein tells him, uh, as Oppenheimer is being red-baited and villainized for opposing the nuclear program he began, they will punish you. Then time will pass. And then, when they no longer fear you, they will bring you back, give you a medal. But remember, they're doing it for themselves, not you. Now, Oppenheimer tells Einstein, When I first talked to you about the atom bomb, I told you the worst possible outcome was that I would start a chain reaction that might blow up the world. By that, he meant that the single bomb was so powerful that it could literally trigger a series of other explosions upon detonation. He says, while I was wrong about that one explosion, the arms race has now created that chain reaction we can't hide. Now, Oppenheimer's despair was validated in the epic scene with U.S. President Harry Truman in which Oppenheimer argues that the bomb's greatest achievement would be to create a nuclear disarmament movement where all nations agree not to build it or use it. Truman replies, no, this is the start of a whole new expansion of our weapons to take over the world. And as Oppenheimer leaves Truman, he says to his aide, don't ever bring that crybaby into my office again. So Channing uh, Thanks for that level of engagement, you know, you and I talk a lot about art and politics and representation, and uh, you know, we're going to still talk about the film as representation because we're all going to have different opinions, but I urge everybody, no question to go see it, Uh, I think it's the most important film, I don't know how long, 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 long time that I've seen. Good morning, Akuna Uka, what's up?
2: Good morning. Good morning. I'm really excited to uh, for you to dig more into this idea of Oppenheimer as an organizer. Uh, there's a line in the article where you say Oppenheimer was not just a brilliant scientist, but an organizer of people, scientists of the project itself. Uh, so can you talk a little bit more about how you viewed Oppenheimer as an organizer, some of the qualities he brought out, and then the arc of change over the course of the film.
0: Yeah, you should answer that question.
2: I should answer the question.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And then I will.
2: Absolutely. Well, as someone who very enthusiastically uh, read the article and and talked about it and have not seen the movie, but now I'm more excited to do so after uh, digging into it a lot last night... um, Oppenheimer seems to be an organizer in the sense of, one, uh, his ability to pull people into his own vision, right? So uh, there's quite a bit of time where he's, you know, kind of the mayor of this 6,000-person town, and they're all there with the sole purpose of building this bomb, isolated from, you know, their everyday life. And he's able to one, recruit people into this mission, uh, but also to make sure that they have a shared vision of what they're working towards accomplishing. And there's even a moment in the article where you discuss how one person had the idea of siloing people so that if they were infiltrated, which is obviously something that organizers are constantly concerned with, so that felt appropriate. Uh, But if they were infiltrated, if everyone only had a piece of the mission, uh, then the whole project uh, wouldn't be at risk. And Oppenheimer actually took the entire uh, different approach and said that everyone needs to know what the shared vision is. Uh, so that they know what they're working towards, and also to build that enthusiasm and excitement and that the charisma that he brought to the group was something important, but also uh something that you point out is that he's you know probably one of the smartest people in the room oftentimes, and so uh being really intelligent not only in terms of the actual science right, because you know a good organizer organizes others, but they're always one of the best organizers in the room, right. Um, so his ability to do that is very clear. And then also the emotional IQ of being able to work with that group. So these are some of the pieces that we, we talked about that I'm really excited to actually see on the big screen this weekend.
0: Well, you can see that I'm very lucky to have these of my team members and we have that vision. We, we work so hard at Kuna, Channing and I to keep refining our own vision. And that's why we... Jenny and I are co-directors, we spend more time with each other than the outside world because the constantly, constantly are we sure where we're going, what do we think, how do we assess this, is a daily, it's a minute-by-minute minute activity. I was always laughing at how people ask how many hours I work, and I think every hour the minute, every, I, I mean, it's hard not to think about this, you know what I mean? I mean, this is what I do. And I don't see it as work, so uh, I'm going to read some of that. So first of all, Kuna, you, you're a very fine organizer, and it's so, folks. You've listened to us start talking about a film. I'm going to read you some of the headlines, which is what Channy suggested I do. Is that, are you going to do them?
1: Sure. Okay, cool. I, I think that was one thing that I, when I started taking notes on the articles, boy, these are some headlines. Each one of them can be a chapter in a book. Each one of them can be a film, and so there's a few of them. So I'll read them. Um, Oppenheimer, the film as entertainment and spectacle, which we just talked about, the unbearable whiteness of Oppenheimer. Sorry, Oppenheimer's cast. Oppenheimer was the was not just brilliant, uh, a brilliant scientist, but an organizer of people, of scientists, of the project itself. my view of history of oppenheimer the manhattan project and the great world war against fascism the film humanizes u.s communists and portrays Robin, robert oppenheimer as the communist dedicated and noble um robert oppenheimer as a brilliant organizer oppenheimer as an anti-nuclear activist oppenheimer on trial nolan's brilliant use of the victoria victor um sorry vicious and unprincipled interrogation of Oppenheimer to expose perfidy and sadism of the system. Nolan chooses not to show the horror of dropping the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and excruciating suffering it caused. The film hints at, but does not fully develop, Oppenheimer's inflated self-image, belief he could change policy and... His desperate belief he can influence those in power by his charisma, loyalty, and persuasive argumentation. The central question of Oppenheimer, why would the US Army invest $2 billion in three years to build the atomic bomb? This can be best understood through a timeline of of events. The answer? The Manhattan Project was never part of an anti-Nazi military strategy, it was a crucial Uh, Critical element of the U.S. post-war plan to go to war with the Soviet Union. The refusal by Nolan to explain to the audience that the U.S. strategy of post-war confrontation and even nuclear war against the Soviet Union was the primary motivator of Los Alamos um, and makes the politics of the entire film based on what can only be a political choice and conscious misrepresentation. Put a note in, we talked about the third line, so that that gets there. Um, The conclusion, with the defeat of the German by the Soviet Union, the U.S. was planning a world war against communists and the Soviet Union. And finally, Nolan covers up the movement among friends and the Soviet Union all over the world to help them develop a nuclear bomb. When it becomes clear the U.S. objective was to use it against the Soviets.
0: So, good morning. This has been, this show is called Spoiler Alert. We have spoiled the hell out of it for those of you who, <laughs> uh, for those of you who say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I want, trust me. There's nothing we're going to, if you didn't know that they dropped the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, then uh, you, you're not on the show anyway. But seriously. And you that's, need to come to the strategy and Soul bookstore so you can read about it. Thank you, thank you. So, you see how the three of us work. Um, so let me talk to you a little bit, because um, this is wonderful. Um, you know, at one point, you know, I, I always talk about Leanne, but one point when I um, go up in the middle of the night, I found another thing. She said, remember, you're working on your book. This is not your book. Uh, this is an article. But I did the whole book in one week of nonstop, like 72, 80 hours of more. I get up at midnight, and oh, my God, I forgot this. So... The first thing I want to do is really thank my editor, Jeffrey Sinclair, at uh, Counterpunch, because there's just a lot of gratitude. Uh, go on counterpunch.org. And normally, when I send stuff to Jeff, he just says, got it, that's it. But he said, you know, I said, I'm not finished yet, I, I'm, I need more time, I'm, I'm still trying to understand this whole thing. And it is the lead story um, for authors, I mean, artic- you know, it's the lead story in Counterpunch with a great picture, of, I guess, from the uh, film of Oppenheimer surrounded by a massive flame of explosion. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is a stream of consciousness, but let me just try to talk to you about my sort of summary of the film. Um, so the first thing you have to understand is that this, this whole thing starts in 1941. And I have to say, I know this history really, really well, but the more you know, the more you don't know. So the reason why you know something is so you have a structure in your mind to grab all the things you don't know and know where to put them. And then the more you put them, then you got a better structure, but then there's always infinite number of things you don't know. So it's not like I've studied this since I was 17, which I did, but I learned so much in the process of writing this. So it is about the film, then it's about me as a Jewish communist who identifies with Oppenheimer. He's from New York, I'm from New York. Uh, I would have been, I'm sure, in the Manhattan Project, an example. I would have been, and then I hope I would have been one of the people that would say, oh my God, what the hell are we doing? But the, So let me just talk to you about the film a little bit and what some of the other themes are. And Thanks. Um, so basically what happens is that as i tell in the story that roosevelt was uh, a supporter of fascism and an anti-semite now when i say supporter of fascism he didn't like fascists the fascists were after him in in, in the united states henry ford uh, joseph kennedy who was john kennedy's father was a, a aggressive fascist who loved hitler so he knew he had people in the the german american bund loved hitler so You had people in the United States who loved Hitler and put those Jews in the oven. And um, so Roosevelt is very liberal. And don't confuse liberal with anti-capitalist or don't confuse liberal with anti-fascist. That's right. So what happens is that they see Hitler coming to power. And it doesn't take much to understand that he already came to power in a crusade against the Jews. Uh, just as Trump did, to to come to power in a white supremacist hatred of people. You're you're voting for Trump because you hate Mexicans, you hate black people, you hate trans people, you hate women, you hate women who want an abortion. I mean, hate is a very powerful organizing principle. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we're not haters, we we, uh, do hate the system, but I don't focus on hate. Focus on—it's a cruel system that needs to be overthrown. It's a cruel system that needs to be dismantled, as they say. But it certainly needs to be opposed, and you start with opposition to the system. But it's really rooted for love for the black community, love of Latino, love of women, love of trans people. It's you—that's what you start with, and then you take on the system more than hate it because you're an organizer. You're not—it's they got their thing, and you're trying to do your thing. So. The Communist Party was leading this anti-fascist movement when the United States did not want to go to war. The United States was holding back because it was poised to replace England and France, especially England, as the biggest imperialist power. So it was saying, let let them all kill each other, but especially, let's make everybody attack the Soviet Union, Mm. because the Soviet Union was the only country in the world that was socialist at the time and communist. So the thinking was, Hitler is a capitalist, but you're talking about Mercedes-Benz in there. You're talking about uh, Siemens Motors. You know, we could go over... Every company from Germany today was based on slave labor in Germany of Jews and other people. So they said, Mercedes, we can deal with Mercedes. We can deal with Siemens. We can deal with these companies. Hitler is a little, you know, too much for us, but we can live with him. And it was only because Hitler couldn't live with them that they got involved. It's only because Japan attacked Pearl harbor, because Japan knew the United States was coming into the war, eventually, and they took preemptive action to, to destroy the, the most of the planes and most of the ships. So now Roosevelt is caught in a dilemma, which is, oh my God, Germany is a very powerful country. It's starting to invade the Soviet Union. What do we do? So Hitler realized there ain't that many... The French, by the way, who I hate. is a hate. I hate the French. Because they, like... They didn't even fight Hitler. They they wanted... They had a a, a Jewish president, Leon Blum, at the time. And half the France was saying, I'd rather have Hitler than that Jew. Um. I swear to God. And they welcomed... There's a film called The Sorrow and the Pity... About how um, how many people in France wanted Hitler to come in and take it over? So they didn't even fight when Hitler came. They said, "Come on in, come on in." So, but they were still allowed to keep Vietnam. They were still allowed to keep their colonies. So then we have this thing called the Manhattan Project. Good morning, everybody. By the way, this is Eric Mann on a rant, or no, not on a rant, on a stream of consciousness with Akuna Uka and Cheney Martinez and our friends out there. And in about 8.40, we'd love to hear from you, 818-985-5735, because we're in studio, and we don't often, sometimes we pre-record. And whoever's up at 8 in the morning with us, we'd love to hear from you. So now we get to the Manhattan Project. Albert Einstein, 1939, they understood the issue of nuclear fission. And nuclear fission is when they split the atom and understood there was phenomenal energy that was going to be produced by that. That energy was called atomic energy, the splitting of an atom. I mean, there's so much stuff. One of the things that we see in the film is all these scientists, the minute this paper comes out, they all go, you sure? Let's do the math. They go, you know, they... You saw Matt Damon in Goodwill Hunting where he's got this math problem that's 16 bol- uh, bulletin boards. They're up there and they add that one thing and they'll go, yep. Yeah, that's it. They don't, you know, because the more you know, the more you, how you, they have a structure to grab this. So, oh my God. And then they say to Oppenheimer, what does this mean? He says, a bomb. Yeah. That's what it's about. This energy, peaceful uses of atomic energy, in my ass. The United States is about war. So everybody understands that whoever translates nuclear fission into a bomb, th- there's the exponential capacity to destroy your enemy and possibly destroy the world. So, you're on KPFK, Voices from the lines, your National Movement Building Show. We are waking up and snow the revolution. Thanks, Gary Baca, for being there with us in the morning. It means a lot. So, they formed this thing called the Manhattan Project. And what they realized is that Germans are, are at least a year ahead of having the bomb. Germany had the richest intellectual history of any country in the world, but most of the intellectuals were Jews. So when they <laughs> uh, moved against the Jews, all the leading uh, nuclear physicists moved to the United States or moved to England quick. And many of the people in the Manhattan Project had fled Hitler. So they had real reason to want to drop a bomb on Hitler and to drop a bomb on Nazi Germany. And they knew already the Jews were in the camps. So that was the good point, really. The problem was that the more you work with this, you realize that this is a different kind of bomb. This is a bomb that, once you start it, it's a great attraction is its exponential capacity to kill people. That's what you like about it. It could blow up Germany, for all you know. There's a scene that's not in here. I read somewhere that Oppenheimer and Gen- General Leslie Groves were in a secret conversation with the governor of New Mexico to say we're all going to uh, test a bomb. Mm-hmm. And I want you to know it may blow up New Mexico. And you better get ready for an evacuation. That's the level of horror about what the bomb is about. So, of course, there's Cillian Murphy, who's my absolute favorite, favorite actor, and who was in Peaky Blinders, and apparently he's been in every one of uh, Nolan's films. And, you know, one of the things I talk about in the film is uh, the identification with the protagonist. Right. You know, like, if you cast Brad Pitt as Hitler, after people go, I love Hitler, I love him. No, it's Brad Pitt. Yeah, he did kill a few Jews, but look how cool he is. And he's going through an internal struggle. And so the film, Marlon Brando said, why do you think they shut the lights out? Because you think you're me. You think I'm making love with that woman. You think you're making love with that woman. You're not. The lights go on, you look at yourself, oh, my God. Then you look at your partner, oh, She's not Elizabeth Taylor. And I'm not, (laughs) you know, and I'm not Marlon Brando. Shoot! But where do you think people go? The lights go out and the screen goes on and you are there. So, there's a lot of work that uh, Nolan does to make Up and Arm a very attractive character because he is. And that's why, the more I understand the film, the more how great it is because what he's trying to get you to understand is this very attractive man who people, women loved. He was in relationships with lots and lots of women. Men loved him. Everybody loved him. And he led them and himself into the worst crime that had ever been committed at that time. And it led to what happened in Vietnam and other things. So the point is, It is a Greek tragedy, because if you didn't love Oppenheimer, then you wouldn't be sad about it. If you weren't attracted to him, and understand why, as he was saying, why would people come into that? Because he had a vision that we're going to defeat fascism. And we'll get into part two about the Soviet Union, but the point was the United States always knew its goal was to kill the Soviet Union. It was not the goal to kill fascism. The goal was to defeat fascism. So then we would take over Germany. And they would take over Germany. They would take over Italy. They would take over Japan. And then we would all, under capitalism, go after the Soviet Union. That's exactly what happened. So let's perfect. Uh, Gary, I would love to hear some music. And then we'll have uh, Kuna Uka and Cheney Martinez back. And then 818-985-5735. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, this was the film that I wrote, but enormous, enormous appreciation of what Oppenheimer has done. I mean, let's be clear that it doesn't lead you to communism, it doesn't lead you to revolution, but if it leads you anywhere, it's going to lead you in that direction if you have any understanding of what this film is trying to say. And it sure as hell makes the establishment look ugly. So, and makes Harry Truman, by the way, Look, when you see Harry Truman, this white, angry idiot, think Joe Biden. Because when Joe Biden gets up and goes, President Xi does not have a Democratic bone in his body, but i got to get some cocaine to snort with my son. uh, Come on, man. Your son is up for all these things that they've done, all these horrible deals you've cut with the Ukraine. And Biden is more hateful than Trump on the issue of China more hateful than Trump on the issue of Russia, and we are in grave danger of a nuclear war today. So this isn't, is the reason we read history, is hopefully to change it. So, hey, everybody, we are back. You're on Voices from the Frontlines. You're on KPFK, 90.7 FM, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, streaming live on the web at kpfk.org. Also, check out our website at voicesfromthefrontlines.com. Last night, after Kuna and Channing and I met for three, four hours, Channing and I went and did the email to our loyal listeners and people all over the country and all over the world. So if you uh, go on com and register, you get a free email from the Strategy Center every week telling you about the show. So, <laughs> of course, Nancy from Brentwood. Love you, Nancy. You're coming. 840. So, Kuna, Channing, what's up?
1: <laughs> uh, first of all, that was a great song. Very right on... Uh right on point and give credit to prince (laughs) he (laughs) sings about everything um you know i want to dig deep into this identification with the protagonist and one thing i was reflecting on um uh, one thing i was joking about is this is what films are made of and what i mean by that is um nolan actually is known for the whole batman series right He's known for even some of uh, the action movies. I don't know if it's DC or Marvel get mixed up. I know comics are going to be mad at me for that. (laughs) Um, But he's known for this. And when you look at those characters, those characters are literally based on war. Um, And if there's anything about the identification with the protagonist, then it's, it's not just formulaic, because there's the point even in this film where, you know, the protagonist is like, wait a minute, you tricked me into this trick bag and then is killed, right? Um, in this film, metaphorically, right? But I-, I wonder if you wanted to speak about, you know, the, the use of film as... I-, I don't know what to call it. It's almost like it's not just propaganda, but it's almost... You know, creating this culture of war and everyone seeing war and violence and policing as entertainment.
0: Well, you know, everybody, we have a strategy and soul film theater, and uh, we're going to show a film called uh, Havana Four Fifty Five. We've shown a film called Bus Riders Union. We are going to show political films. I'd love to see if we could show um, uh, Oppenheimer. Yeah. But uh, you and I, Channing, spend so much time thinking about this. Leanne does, a lot of people do, is the role of art, the role of representation. You know, uh, you know. look at how Picasso did Garnica, uh about the Spanish Civil War. Picasso was a communist. And did you know that, folks? Picasso was a communist. Almost everybody who was good was. <laughs> and and you, what you're going to find out is they were. That's what I'm trying to say is... Uh, so you and I watch a lot of films and then we talk about them and we try to figure out what is the filmmaker doing and um, it's pretty cool I'm a protagonist in two documentaries Tiger by the Tail and Bus Riders Union and there it's a very straightforward representation this is a group, this is what they're doing but even then watch how uh, how Chan is how Haskell Wexler makes us attractive right Right you watch and say, oh my god, what a cool bunch of people, I want to join them. Well, he took a gazillion hours of film. Uh, and he still puts together a representation That's right. of what we're doing. So uh, the main point is I'm a little like both sort of in over my head around the fact that you went to Otis College of Art and Design. And there's so much theory about film that I'm just realizing we're going to have to get into. But the thing that's amazing about film is, and I read books like crazy, but film is a whole other thing. I mean, film has the most emotive capacity to transport you somewhere else, and therefore the filmmaker has an enormous responsibility about where he or she is trying to take you. Right. So what are you thinking, in
2: I'm thinking about that power and and how Nolan wielded it. So obviously, if you're going to the IMAX, you're looking to be entertained. But there's also a sense of education, right? There's going to be people who are going (laughs) to learn more about World War II from this film than they ever did in school. So for better or for worse. Um, One thing that I'm thinking about is his portrayal of communists. His portrayal of Oppenheimer's uh, relationship with the Communist Party. Uh, there's a line in your article where you say, you know, the film is set in the 1930s during the high point of the U.S. Communist Party, whose work Robert Oppenheimer was a supporter and many of whose members, including his brother Frank and his wife Jackie, were his close friends. The party's united front against fascism and popular front politics of building abroad alliances moved its membership from ten thousand in the early nineteen thirties to fifty thousand by the end of the decade. So I'm wondering what are you what do you think of Nolan's portrayal of communists in this film, uh, maybe as it compares to other films, or even if communists are allowed to exist in any real way in other films?
0: Well, that's one of the great achievements here with Eric Mann. That was the voice of Akuna Uka and Chani Martinez. And this is how we talk, which is what we do <laughs> every day. We talk like this. Um, I, he couldn't have done it any better. Um, that's, again, I mean, as I, you know, I am keep re-understanding the film, is, um, he shows Oppenheimer walking into a meeting of organizing, uh, graduate students and scientists into a union. Well, in the 1930s, the only people who did anything like that were the communists. Who did the Scottsboro Boys case? The communists. Who built the National Negro Con- uh, Congress? The, the, the communists. Who organized the CIO? The communists. Um... So, I think he portrays the kind of left-wing period. It's like in the 60s. How many people, you know, I would say, how many people marched with Dr. King? Oh, apparently 400 million, because everybody thinks they marched with Dr. King. And it's not wrong, because in their mind, they were there. They were there. They were marching with Dr. King, but they were marching in Philadelphia or in St. Louis with the Congress of Racial Equality, where I work, or the student on Von Kornike, or the or the NAACP, or the local Black Action Network. And at the time, everybody was in the movement. Everybody was against the war in Vietnam. You know, I mean, not really, but tens of millions of people. The communists were the ones who came in and gave structure to that. So, so that's good, but where are we going here? Which is why we call it the labor community strategy center. Because we're not the anger center or the hateful center, we're the strategy center. So I think he does a terrific job. This is Nolan and, of course, Cillian Murphy. Um, and also, you know, his wife Kitty is, uh, is a great character in the film because she has been in the Communist Party, she's alcoholic, She's depressed, but they're in it together. And um, there's a great scene in the film where he, you see he's going to be on, on one of those witch trials. And he's just taking it and taking it and just beating him up and beating him up. And he's trying to be, well, no, that's not actually what happened. Let me, t- uh, you know, let me finish my story, please. And she says, why don't you fight back? Why don't you fight back? And then she says, I realize why. You're still so guilty of what you did that you want to be beat up. But the thing is that that's true. You can't get that blood off your hands. The whole point of the film is life was about choices. And Mm -hmm. you can make a lot of mistakes and crawl back from the edge. But there's some things you can never do. And if you you go over that line, you can't come back. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot what the film was about, is the irrevocable nature of dropping a bomb, that evaporated people. I mean, 220,000 people. And you have to talk about the ripple effect of all the people who were traumatized. And one more thing before I go to the phones and my friend Nancy is, uh, something I didn't think I did in my article that I will in the next incarnation, but don't worry, it's I am working on my book, is the Japanese were horrible killers. I mean, they were, they had the uh, comfort women in Korea who were forced prostitution for the Japanese army, they were torturers and murderers and uh, horrible, horrible. They killed the the Chinese, they they invaded China, which none of this is in my review or in the film. But, so it's not the innocent, meaning that the reason why you don't kill civilians is because you kill the soldiers. That's been the rule, that your soldiers and our soldiers kill each other, and whoever is left standing, wins the war. It's theoretically been argued that you cannot kill an entire country because you're at war with it. So the the thing I'm adding, uh, Kuna, is that it captures brilliantly the exciting life of being a communist. Uh, And this guy Lawrence, I don't know if it's the Lawrence Liverpool Labs or anything, this war criminal, he comes in and screams at, because they're at Berkeley, he screams at... uh, uh, what the hell are you doing, Oppenheimer? Organize my goddamn people! You go back to work. You're, you know, you're a scientist. He says, "Well, people got a right to organize," <laughs> and I'm sorry, they're not robots. Mm. So he, uh, Nolan portrays the communists as if the Communist Party would want to write that part of the script. That's how good it is. And his brother is in the Communist Party. His his lover is in the Communist Party. So. Uh, I'm constantly unpewing this in my own consciousness so let's go to the phones and talk to our friend Nancy from Brentwood who's always on the phone 818-985-5735 the reason we came in studio Nancy was to talk to you how you doing?
3: Hey well I got two quick uh, questions or comments Uh, one is Einstein Uh, he was approached to approach the scientists, this is a story I heard I don't know if it's true or not, asking them that if he gave help them with this, that they do not drop the bomb on Japan, but they drop it uh, on an uninhabited island off the coast of Japan so that the Japanese could see it that was number one, I don't know if that story is true or not I know that Einstein was very upset by you know this, because he, he was a pacifist, he had to feed the Nazis as a Jew himself uh, number two is the problem with the downwinders. The downwinders are mostly indigenous people who lived in the area mm-hmm. where this was uh, happening. And uh, they're suffering to this day from radiation sickness and cancer. Um, so is there, you know, do you think this movie could maybe wake people up and say, what about the people who are still suffering cancer? sort of like Agent Orange, in a way. Well, the so. first
0: thing, Nancy, is that... Really, thank you for your thoughtfulness. And this is Nancy Lawrence, who's a friend of ours and works with the Strategy Center. The first thing is, uh, no, the, uh, the, the, the plan of the Manhattan Project was to drop a bomb. Uh, the concept of dropping the bomb somewhere else to show the Japanese, uh, there was a fear that, if, well, what if you show it and then it doesn't work? Well, but it doesn't have any problem dropping it over Japan and seeing if it works. So, uh, no, that story is not true because the whole purpose of building the bomb was that. The second thing, which I feel bad about, and therefore I'm going to... Uh, there was a whole section there that somehow in all my drafts, which is really bad, got lost, which was sent to me by Manuel Criollo, which I'm just going to cut and paste uh, into the next iteration... Is that there are indigenous people in New Mexico today, who are still suffering from that, uh, the use of the atomic bomb essentially in New Mexico. So right. um, you're absolutely right, Nancy. And the thing is, is that there's a line in the film where Oppenheimer, Truman says, "Well, what do you want to do now?" He says, "Give the land back to the Indians." It's a very good line, except why'd you take it from them? Hmm. Why'd you take it them? So it's an infinite. Uh, learning experience, and, um, there's a very good article in Counter, um, in, um, uh, it's a left-wing, uh, I get it every day, I'm sorry, it's a, a news service that has articles in it, I'll remember it, that has an article already about, from an indigenous person, talking about the terrible impact of the bomb on, as you said, the downwinders. And uh, the last thing I'll say is that, Nancy, I mean, you're very important. You know, I'm serious, that you are the person who's going to call, like clockwork. And how much I appreciate you, because you're the one who takes it the most seriously. So I think the purpose of the film, the purpose of the article, why do you write articles? Uh, Is somebody's going to read an article theoretically and be moved by it? And let me see if I can find the last line in my article. Good, because uh, that's the punchline. Uh, hold on, this is called The Rustling of Paper uh, uh, Radio Show. In the end, uh, still, the theme of redemption and rebirth in the face of self-hatred and despair is also one that the film and rock and demonstrated. He spent the rest of his life challenging the establishment, using himself as the primary example of the murderous policies he now opposed. He could have retreated into self-absorbed guilt. Instead, he took on the system over nuclear weapons, opposed the building of the hydrogen bomb, testified in front of Congress against all nuclear weapons, and called for cooperation, not war with the Soviet Union. He had become death, but still fought for life. He became an anti-war crusader. In the end, Oppenheimer, in the film brings back the atrocities of the U.S. to a mass audience. The events of that period and our lives today are operating at rapid speed. The forces of reaction are even stronger and the choices before us can lead to despair, but require courage and hope. The story of good people doing bad things should lead to a revolutionary opposition to a system, U.S. imperialism, that is evil to its core and eats up even people with good intentions. Today, Joe Biden, the spitting image of murderous Harry Truman, threatens to unleash a nuclear war against the People's Republic of China. The terrifying interaction of climate change and nuclear war puts the whole world's existence in danger. U.S. society is a system of death, the main lesson of the film, in my view, is that yesterday, today, and tomorrow, the U.S. maintains its genocidal policies that are structural to the long history of U.S. imperialism. And here's my last sentence. The challenge for all of us is to challenge the empire and fight for humanity and the planet. Normally, I end with six things about what you've got to do, and I end with just one sentence, which is, you can't see this film without going out and saying, what am I going to do about it? Right. And you need to understand that Joe Biden is Harry Truman. That The Democrats ran against Trump by saying he tolerates dictators. Meaning he gets along with North Korea, doesn't want to go to war with North Korea, doesn't want to go to war with China, doesn't want to go to Russia. Elect us, and we will have a multicultural genocidal war against the world. And we have more gay, lesbian, black, Asian uh, Latino, Latina people that want to go to war with China Trump is a danger unto himself he is a fascist but Joe Biden is a center-right imperialist and we have to up the level of criticism of both of them in the same sentence because it is a two-pronged war and any effort to just talk about Biden without Trump which I do sometimes, is a mistake, any effort to talk about Trump without Biden. Not because it's just, well, they're too capitalists. They are both carrying out specifically genocidal policies that have to be approached and, uh, and opposed. So, Nancy, 818-985-5735. Uh, uh, I'm talked out. Akuna where are you at? Chani,
1: where are you at? and my i mean i think that that just gets to the point and that's why you got to join an organization um and that's why you got to come to strategy and Soul and help us build our international politics against war and read our report that will be coming out i don't know n- later this year or next year about the the more than what 1500 military bases by the united states across the world um it's just I like the way that you end, um, and the thing that we were talking about is um, it conjures Dr. King, which always brought up the moral question. That's right. Um, which is different than get uh, let black people vote in this uh, in the elections, right? It's different than stop segregating our counters, right? It moves to the then whole state of not only are you creating a war at home but you're creating a war above and as Malcolm X said and as uh, as uh, Muhammad Ali said, well those people seem really great <laughs> why Why would I go to your war and bomb their lands on your behalf, look at what you've done to them and you did the same thing to us well let me
0: add and uh, disagree on something which is the generality resides in the particular it is at the lunch counter where you raise the moral question it is at that moment when the black students from the historically black colleges and universities put their bodies on the line and the whole world saw in the war wars what it took to be free and that sparked millions of young black people Uh, millions of young black people into the movement because they put their body on the line. Mm-hmm. Um, the voting rights, people, so many black people fought. It, it's shocking to me how much black people wanted to vote, how much that meant to them as enslaved people. Now you could say, well, why do you want to vote? Blah, blah, blah. Because most black people are part of the United States. They feel the fact that they love it more than white people do, because they feel like this is their country. and the. There's some truth to that. So what the civil rights movement said, well, if it's our country, then let's take it over and make it into the image of what we want. So it is the person, you know, I I work at Strategy and so on, there's this houseless woman who comes in and she's got all, she's 30 years old, all her teeth are rotten out, and it's cold, and she says, please don't throw me out, please don't throw me out. I said, sweetheart, are you kidding? No. In fact, this is, we got a nice little kind of awning here and you can sleep there but during the day just sleep right next to it and I'll get you some blankets she is why I do this work you know what I mean so Elizabeth in LA glad to hear from you
3: hi thanks you know 49% of uh, potential voters in the United States are neither Democrat nor Republican if they all were to register Green we would see major changes because the Green Party is against the war And it's a major party, major third party, and can definitely win if even more than half of that 49% of independent voters were to register Green.
0: Well, thanks, Elizabeth. I don't agree because, but first of all, thank you. The most important thing is thank you for calling the show. Thank you. Call eight one eight nine eight five five seven three five. 818 985 5735 I don't want to get in an argument about the Green Party. The Green Party, you're doing a good thing. That's the point. At this point, everybody should be doing a good thing. Green Party is doing a good thing. So we're not going to agree on what is the best thing to do, but you're going in the right direction, and I appreciate that. Um, at some point, all of us, we don't have a unified movement right now. So um, Akuna and Channing, we're going to sort of end with our uh, join the Strategy Center conversation because, uh, as you started, Channing, because at the end of the day that's what I got to offer you know I write the article do the thing but at the end of the day at the corner of King and Crenshaw right near the McClung there's a beautiful four storefront complex and we have the Strategy and Soul Films Strategy and Soul Bookstore now we got this amazing uh, e-bike library that Channing has uh, been great to we're going to have bikes that you can rent especially for low income black folks and uh Uh, So what's your last uh, appeal to our listeners about joining the Strategy Center, Kuna?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, this past hour has been the appeal, right? You join us, you learn, you get stretched, you get challenged, and then you have to ask yourself the question, well, what do I do? And if you're part of a group, then you have a group of like-minded folks where you can ask that question and strategize around it, so... Uh, if you like what you heard and you want to hear more and, and do something, then I would definitely say join the strategy center.
0: Info at the org. How's all the different ways they can
1: reach us, Janning? Sure, you can go to our website, thestrategycenter.org, which I update every week. You can also and you should also sign up for a newsletter on voices from the and thestrategycenter.org because new versions of this article are coming out by tomorrow or by next week, um, and you want to be on the list to get the, those articles and get all of the updates about what's going on in South LA, uh, from South LA to the world, from the Strategy Center. Um, and then, obviously, we need folks to go listen to and promote our podcasts, and now, our, I mean, every... I kid you not, every month we are getting onto new platforms. We're now on Spotify, we're on SoundCloud, we're on Apple Podcasts, we're on TuneIn, we're on uh, so many other podcasts. I can't even remember their names off the top of my head now. Um, And the importance about doing this radio show, as we always talk about, is that we do the work inside and outside of South LA every single day. We don't necessarily always get the room to talk about world politics, which affects the specific in South L.A. And so this radio station gets to be an organizing tool that you get to say, I listen to this show. And you should go listen to these politics and then join and do something about it. Um, And so uh, sign up to our mailing list.
0: And I just want to say that um, I'm working on a book. Called uh, "I Saw a Revolution with My Own Eyes," organizing history and strategy for the revolution we need today. I have to finish it by the end of the year. I have a wonderful agent to exist in the real world. We have a proposal that's out to publishers, and I want to reassure my wife that when we talk about the next version of the article, relax. I'm going to work on the book. I promise. So. <laughs> I have to work with Acuna on the curriculum. I got to work with Channing on everything, and I got to finish this book by the end of the year. Uh, I'm very grateful. My two comrades, two of my best friends, show up at, in the morning to come in the studio with me, and uh, that means so much to me. You know, at the end of the day, it's the people I'm closest to who mean the most to me. So, Gary, we say goodbye. Okay, Gary Baca. Thank you for everything. Thank you for letting us in the door. Thank you for letting us out the door. We'll see you next week. You're on Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building show. Wake up and smell the revolution. Please check us out at voicesfromthefrontlines.com. Acuna, Channing, Nancy, and the sister who called from the Green Party. Thank you for everything. Take good care. I could live like I'm alone.